Dr. F. Plateau, formerly of Syracuse, New York, desires us to inform the people of Clearfield and vicinity that he has permanently located among them for the purpose of practicing his profession. The doctor will be in readiness to attend to all professional calls, either night or day. His office is on Reed Street, south side, between the railroad and 2nd Street, where he may be found night and day when not engaged elsewhere. I believe the air with the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the dying Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 30. The ad that I read at the opener, was printed 150 years ago this week in the Raftsman's Journal and another paper, but I'll get to that later when I tell you more about Dr. F. Plateau, formerly of Syracuse. But first, I need to tell you about another character that I ran into this week. I belong to the Facebook group Reflections on the History of Syracuse, New York, and Onondaga County. Now, from what you have known about me uh, and my propensity for verbosity, you can well imagine why I like this group. And the name really reflects the tenor of the group. I, I like it. It's, it's unique in my experience. And since I do a lot of research in Syracuse, it's... Uh, it's a short, sort of a, a sure thing for me, and I, I, I enjoy that group. But since the group has so many members, I think upwards of 15,000, it's statistically almost a certainty that you're going to get some real yahoos responding to just about anything you post. And this is no exception. Remember episode 28, the one about the girl and the bears? Well, I posted a link to that episode last weekend, and I got three people, quote-unquote, informing me that there is a Syracuse in Missouri. They leapt at the opportunity to point out a, quote-unquote, mistake that I had made. (laughs) So let me tell you about this exchange. One of those people said, there's another Syracuse in Missouri. I was annoyed because I didn't want this entire group thinking I was a moron who made a Bush League mistake. So I responded to a couple of them saying, this article is about Syracuse, New York. She replied, it's not. 
I can see that you've posted wrong information to your blog, so I can imagine it'd be tough to admit, lol, but really, as juicy as the story would be, it's not here. For the name of history, please double-check facts. She went on to post a screenshot about some newspaper... Uh, oh, uh, Library of Congress. It's the Library of Congress en entry for uh, the Weekly Caucasian, which is the paper from which I drew that article. I said, the newspaper article is about Syracuse, New York. Furthermore, I said, take a deep breath, count to ten, read my post, read your reply, read my response to you just trying to get her to stop and actually pay attention at all to the copious material that I had provided to back up the claims in the podcast. So she rolled up her stupid sleeves and said, Hugh Yeaman, no, it's not. If you don't believe me, go to the Onondaga Historical Association and ask them. This would never happen here in New York during that time. And Missouri damn sure wouldn't be wasting paper and ink on an article for somewhere over 1,000 miles away, over a bear and girls, putting prices on things like this. I'd compare the news here to other articles in the West during that time, and you'll see how advanced New York has been compared to the Midwest. We were working on women's rights, and slavery had just ended. This is just not the type of news we had going on here at the time. And then she replied to another person that I was talking to in the same thread. He doesn't get it, lol. He still thinks this is about Syracuse, New York. Do I just drop it? Lol, my head hurts. I hate history being misused. Sad emoji, laugh crying emoji. And I stopped wasting time on this imbecile. I just said, admins, I'm going to block this person because I think she's a troll. I won't see anything else from her, but please be aware. And I blocked her seconds after I posted that. Now, I would not be talking about this on the podcast if it was just a story about me getting into an argument with an imbecile on Facebook. That's not worthy. He said, realizing full well that he had already devoted two other podcast episodes to similar situations. Please, take my word for it. I wouldn't be doing this if it were just a, a mundane case of a fight with a troll. This is important, because the more I thought about this exchange, the more I realized she is a manifestation of the very forces of historical disinformation that I'm fighting against. She's the reason I do this stuff. Let's go back to what she said. You'll see what I mean. If you don't believe me, go to the Onondaga Historical Association and ask them. Wow, this troll, imbecile, both, I don't know, is invoking the name of the Onondaga Historical Association. I'm a member of the Onondaga Historical Association. I've spent time in the research room there looking up historical newspapers for this podcast. And the fact that this idiot is invoking the name of that historical organization just makes me quail uh, because she clearly didn't do the slightest investigation into what I said, and that becomes clear uh, as we go on. 
This would never happen here in New York during that time, and Missouri damn sure wouldn't be wasting paper and ink on an article for somewhere over 1,000 miles away over a bear and girls. Putting prices on things like this. I'd compare the news here to other articles in the West during that time, and you'll see how advanced New York has been compared to the Midwest. We were working on women's rights, and slavery had just ended. This is just not the type of news we had going on here at the time. Everything she just said was wrong, categorically, demonstrably wrong, and she would have known that if she had gone to my, what she called my blog, but in fact, all she did was look at the preview image for the podcast. She never looked at the notes. She made an assertion based on her own bias and on her own discomfort. This would never happen here. It did happen here, and it does happen here. If you don't understand why I'm focusing on this, let me back up for a second and ask you a question. Do you recognize the name Garrett Smith? If you know anything about abolition in the mid, well, hell, the, the early to late uh, 19th century, you recognize the name Garrett Smith because he was one of the most important influential features, or sorry, uh, <laughs> one of the most important and influential figures in the abolition movement in the whole country. Garrett Smith lived within a long walking distance from my childhood home. And I didn't know the name Garrett Smith until about two and a half years ago while I was researching this era. I was shocked and embarrassed and angry that I had never heard the name Garrett Smith. I, I could easily have ridden my bike to this guy's home. And I wasn't taught about Garrett Smith. Why? I've got a pretty damn good sense of why. You can't talk about Garrett Smith without bringing up some bloody uncomfortable topics. For instance, why was Garrett Smith so unpopular in this area? Then you have to get into the nuances of the abolition movement and all the internecine squabbling and, and cutthroat behavior and, and rancor within that movement. Uh, I wouldn't say Garrett Smith was quite as disliked by other abolitionists as, um, say, uh, wow, <laughs> um, mental block guy who did the Boston Liberator, Garrison. Garrison. I don't think he was quite as disliked as Garrison, but that changed around the time of the raid on Harper's Ferry by John Brown because after that happened, people discovered the correspondence between Garrett Smith, Garrett Smith and John Brown and that Garrett Smith had supported him financially. And you had People across the country, especially in the South, calling for Garrett Smith's head, literally. And if, if not his, uh, his execution, then his imprisonment. 
Garrett Smith had a nervous breakdown after that, out of the stress from that event. That's not a comfortable subject to teach school children about. It's a hell of a lot easier to think that never would have happened here. We were working on women's rights and slavery has, had just ended. Oh, were we? You and me, were we working on, on women's rights? Hmm. Did, did, did we end slavery? Did, did we? Let's take another example, the Jerry Rescue, another famous Syracuse event. A lot of people like to puff up their chests with pride when they talk about the Jerry Rescue happening in Syracuse, and they use the word we. We did this. Hmm. You know what else we did? We tried to obey the letter of that federal fugitive slave law. We tried to capture Jerry. We tried to put Jerry in chains and let Lear take him back to captivity. And I say that because I know with 100% certainty the Jerry Rescue never would have happened if there hadn't been an abolition convention in Syracuse on that day. A lot of the people who took part in the rescue of Jerry were, were visiting from out of town. So... You remove those visiting abolitionists, and what do you have? You've got the overwhelming majority of Syracusans who either supported the fugitive slave law or didn't feel strongly enough about it to raise their hand and put themselves physically in harm's way to defend Jerry from being kidnapped. So it's just as reasonable to say that we tried to send Jerry back into slavery as it is to say that we rescued him. We're, we're entirely too free with our use of that word, we. And that uncomfortable, nuanced narrative is not something people are comfortable uh, uh, telling their children. So I am leery, <laughs> to say the least. I abhor the use of, of phrases such as, this would have never happened here, and we did this, and we did that. That is a sweeping under the rug of historical truth, and it's exactly why these, these truths are lost to time, and history gets whitewashed. And I'm going to keep fighting against that. So, back to Dr. F. Plateau, P-L-A-T-T-O. Once again, Dr. Plateau, formerly of Syracuse, New York, desires us to inform the people of Clearfield and vicinity that he is permanently located among them, yada, yada, yada. The first printing of this advertisement was, that I can find in the Library of Congress is in the Raftsman's Journal of Wednesday, March 8th, 1871, printed again on March 15th, printed in both the Clearfield Republican 
and the Raftsman's Journal 150 years ago this week on March 22nd. Then, in the Clearfield Republican of May 31st, 1871, we have the first advertisement I can find that is in a, a new series of ads. Now, pay very close attention. Dr. F. Plateau, electric physician and surgeon, offers his services to the people of Clearfield and vicinity and will be in readiness to attend all professional calls by day or night. Office on Reed Street, west of the depot, Clearfield, Pennsylvania. Now, here's the next iteration of that same advertisement in the same paper, Wednesday, June 7th, 1871. Again, play, pay really close attention. Dr. F. Plateau, eclectic physician and surgeon, offers his services, etc., etc., etc. Did you catch the difference? I almost missed it. The first iteration of that ad calls him an electric physician. The second corrects that to eclectic physician. Now, before we get into that distinction, let me finish up with the ads that, well, finish up with the articles that I've found about him. Those ads ran for a while. Then, in December of 1872, Wednesday, December 25th, ah, Christmas Day, 1872, in the Court of Common Pleas of Clearfield County, Pennsylvania, T.J. Boyer versus F. Plateau, uh, the auditor appointed by the court to make distribution of the proceeds arising from the sheriff's sale under the above writ to and among the parties legally entitled thereto will attend to the duties of his appointment on Thursday, January 9th, 1873 at 10 o'clock A.D. at his office in the borough of Clearfield. Dan W. McCurdy, auditor. So, uh, Dr. Plateau is in some legal trouble. Then, on January 14, 1874, there's a lengthier uh, account of uh, his, his worsening legal woes. Notice, in the Common Pleas of Clearfield County, number 196, September term, 1872, H.F. Bigler and Company versus F. Plateau, defendant and George Watson, Samuel Bradford, Isaac Gaines, Alexander Gaines, Joseph Thompson, George W. Gearhart, Andy uh, Jonathan Fenton, Dave Gearhart, Peter Major McGeorge, and William Porter. Garnishes, foreign attachment, and judgment against defendant, and rule entered by plaintiff for assessment of damages. All persons interested are hereby notified that I will assess the damages in this case at the... <clears throat> Prothonotary's office in Clearfield on Saturday, the 24th, January, A.D., 1874, at 2 o'clock p.m., A.C. Tate, Prothonotary. I don't know what a Prothonotary is, but... So, uh, obviously, he ran into a bunch of legal troubles, and a bunch of people got together and sued him for damages, and boy, can you ever paint me unsurprised, because what I have read of all these 
quote-unquote doctors, and just whenever I say doctors in this episode, just understand that I'm putting it in highly sarcastic quotes if that doesn't come through, if I forget to uh, uh, load it up with the appropriate sarcasm. Um, So this guy ran into some legal troubles, and, uh, you know, it uh, looks to me as though he was little more than a grifter who was scenting the popular winds and uh, decided that, oh, I'm not just a doctor from Syracuse. I am an I am an eclectic doctor. Now, if you don't know what eclectic means in the context of mid to late 19th century United States, it's... It's kind of vague because it was such a grab bag of non-traditional medical techniques. It's usually associated with herbal medicine, but the term eclectic medicine was so overused to the point of being devalued by all the, the grifters and charlatans and fabulists that used it. And they had all these <clears throat> schools of eclectic medicine And it's hard to even know what each one of those schools and each one of those practitioners of quote-unquote eclectic medicine did because it was such a a big bucket of crap that got thrown in, whether it was herbal stuff or some kind of electrical uh, shock treatment or or some, some application of electricity or what else, uh, any, any number of esoteric bullshit techniques that these people cared to employ. Now, we go on to the Eaton Weekly Democrat in Eaton, Ohio, of February 29th, 1872, because while I was looking for more information on good old Dr. Plateau of Syracuse, supposedly of Syracuse. And by the way, I went to all my usual sources. I went to uh, uh, Ancestry. I went to the Boyd's Directory of Syracuse for that time. Couldn't find anything. So I think he was making up the whole Syracuse thing. Either that or he's uh, vaguely referring to having been in Syracuse at some point and he was in fact only there much earlier. I don't know. But anyway, I I have a feeling he was just making the whole thing up. So anyway, we go to the Eaton Weekly Democrat, uh, February 29th, 1872, and we find an electrical physician. Now, I got on this track because I started to wonder what other doctors were exploiting the contemporary fascination with electricity. Boy, did I get more than I bargained for. This was the first series of ads that I ran into. Indian doctor and electrical physician, Dr. LaRue, the celebrated Indian doctor and electrical physician of New York, will remain at the Eagle Hotel, Eaton O, for at least four months. I guess uh, O is Ohio in this case. He has made chronic diseases a lifetime profession and his great success in dark County, Ohio, and Randolph County, Indiana, is unparalleled in the history of chronic practice. His 
allopathic diploma can be seen hanging in his room, afflicted Delhi not. Now, several things I need to point out about this. Number one, the electrical physician bit in this case does not seem to be a misprint. And I say that because this ad ran at least four times. If I found four of them, there are probably ten more that I, I didn't find because of the limitations of uh, OCR. Uh, so it ran from uh, February 1872 to March 1872, and that ad in all four cases was unchanged. It said electrical physician, and <laughs> did you notice how I pronounced the last line, afflicted deli not? That's because uh, there was a uh, typo uh, where it spelled delay, D-E-L, why? And that was not corrected either. I'm pointing that out because I've seen this a bunch of times. There, uh, there was a tendency for ads to remain static. I've seen ads that had typos that were maintained throughout months or even years because, remember, everything you see printed in a newspaper this time was the result of a typesetter physically taking the type and mounting it on a rack and they were not about to change that once it was set. They kept that block around to reuse as long as that ad that the customer paid for was being run. So the typesetters did not change anything unless they had to. So that's going to come uh, become important uh, when you consider uh, the, the, the change in... Dr. Plato's ad, like clearly it was important to him that that uh, announcement of him as an electric doctor was changed to eclectic. So now we keep going with Dr. LaRue. Again, the Eaton Weekly Democrat uh, in April 1872, Dr. LaRue can be consulted at Dr. D.B. Holmes' private residence, Camden, Preble County, Ohio, for two weeks upon all chronic diseases. So this doctor, like a lot of doctors and, again, fabulists, charlatans, whatever you want to call them at this time, were basically walking patent medicines. This is a pattern where no matter what the, the medicine or the doctor, they all claim to treat any number of unrelated sicknesses, maladies, diseases, what have you. Again, the Eaton Weekly Democrat, April 18th, 1872. Free lecture. Dr. LaRue will deliver a lecture on medical science at the Methodist Church, Winchester, Ohio, on Tuesday evening, April 23rd, commencing at 7 o'clock, free to all. Dr. LaRue can be consulted upon all chronic diseases at the Ohio House, Winchester, Ohio, from Monday, April 22nd until Monday, May 6th, 1872. Same paper, April 18th. Our correspondence from Camden writes us that Dr. LaRue gave a medical lecture in that place on Tuesday night of last week, and that it was well attended, and that the doctor is a good lecturer and displayed considerable knowledge in medicine, and that is enough. Cap. That, that last bit was C-A-P period in quotes, 
that was apparently the signature line of the writer. This, this happens a lot in newspapers of that time. Uh, columnists would adopt a pseudonym, and uh, it was often droll, and uh, they just assumed people would know who that was. Now, we skip over to Richmond, Indiana, the Richmond Palladium of November 22nd, 1873. Special notice, as Dr. LaRue's wife is very sick, the doctor will not be at the Tremont House, Richmond, Indiana, until Monday, November 24th, 1873. Now, why do I think that's the same Dr. LaRue? Here's why. Same paper, Richmond Palladium in Indiana, November 29th of 73. E.S. LaRue, M.D., the celebrated South American Indian doctor and electrical physician, will be at the Tremont House, Richmond, Indiana, on Monday, November 17, 1873, and remain permanently for six months for the purpose of curing all curable cases of all old chronic diseases, male and female, including all diseases of the eye and ear. It is well known that Dr. LaRue spent five years in Peru, South America, one year of which he spent with Omeon? the great medicine man of the Peruvian Indians, in order to study the medical virtues of the great South American Indian remedies, since which time Dr. LaRue has used the South American Indian remedies with the most unparalleled success in the treatment of chronic diseases. Indeed, oh, instead of the South American Indian remedies being a humbug, they are a grave reality, as thousands will testify who have used them and been cured by them, we, sh we cure by electrical needles, medication by inhalation, and the great South American Indian remedies. Those who desire a cure should apply at once, as it takes some time to cure chronic diseases. Consultation free to all. Dr. LaRue's great success in surrounding counties is prima facie evidence of his undoubted skill as a chronic practitioner. N-R-N-D, uh, Dr. LaRue is a regular graduate of two of the best medical schools in the United States and has spent 25 years in the treatment of chronic diseases. Now, up at the top of that article, there's a pretty well-done illustration probably a woodcut, some kind of engraving in any event. And this dude does indeed have a funny hat and long hair, long beard, long mustache, just a big old mass of hair flowing out of his head and face. So I'm pretty sure being that he has the, the long hair and the title of Indian doctor and electrical physician, I'd say that's the same guy. Now... On to Michigan, Grand Ledge Independent, July 12th, 1878. Dr. LaRue, the long-haired Indian doctor who about a year since was in this village and notwithstanding the abundance of water here persisted in drinking little else but whiskey, has put on the red ribbon at Nashville. So, don't misunderstand me. I do not claim to be 100% sure that those three locations printed articles that were necessarily about the same guy. I've learned 
way too many times from my mistakes doing my genealogy that such coincidences don't necessarily mean anything. But, you know, it's, it's, there's, I think there's a decent chance that those are all the same guy given all the connections. Why am I investigating all these electrical physicians? Well, I got on that track because Dr. Plateau, so-called from Syracuse, supposedly, uh, took the care to have them correct his advertisement. He wanted to be known as an eclectic physician, a distinguished graduate of an eclectic tradition, whatever that meant at the time. And what I found out is that uh, I don't think a lot of people knew what that meant at that time. And I became fascinated with the push and pull of the, the relationship between the public perception of eclectic medicine and the actual uh, wheels-on-the-ground <sighs> practicing of eclectic medicine and the way it was presented and its relationship with electricity and the, the fabulism surrounding electricity. Now, to see what I mean, take a look at these two articles. And by the way, absolutely go to the show notes because all of the articles are right there and uh, that will help you uh, connect with the material. Nashville Union and American. Nashville, Tennessee, Thursday, September 19th, 1872. Under the condensed telegrams, there's a little snippet. The electric doctors are in national convention at Indianapolis. Likewise, national Sorry, Nashville Union and American, Nashville, Tennessee, Friday, June 20th, 1873. Under the same section, the electrical doctors meet in National Convention at Columbus, Ohio on the 25th. I saw both of those and I said to myself, I'll bet that typesetter didn't know what the hell eclectic meant. He either assumed that it was a mistake or he didn't even notice that it said eclectic and just glanced at it and thought that it said electric. So that's what he put into type. And so I went back to the Library of Congress, Chronicling America. That's where most of these articles came from. Some came from Fulton History, but most are from Chronicling America. Uh, the Evening News, Indianapolis, Wednesday, September 18th, 1872, I found exactly what I was expecting to find. Medical, third annual session of the National Eclectic Association. So that's the same month as that notice that I read to you just a minute ago. That was from September 1872, where the electric doctors are in national convention at Indianapolis. Third annual session of the National Eclectic Association, that's what they meant to say. But again, the typesetter changed it. Uh, so we've got the third annual meeting of the National Eclectic Medical Association commenced its session this form noon in the hall of the House of Representatives, the members being called to order by the president, Professor J.R. Duncan of Chicago, Reverend 
Mr. Day, of this city, opened with prayer, after which Governor Baker made the following introductory address, in which he welcomed the association to this state. Mr. President and gentlemen of the National Eclectic Medical Association, I am here this morning not for the purpose of delivering a formal address, but to perform the duty assigned to me of giving utterance to a few words of cordial welcome. It affords me great pleasure to be instrumental in welcoming to the state of Indiana so many educated gentlemen, met in the interests and for the promotion of medical science. No one can help but admire the unselfishness which in modern times causes the members of your profession, on whom so much of human welfare depends, to meet at stated periods in state and national associations for the purpose of promoting the best interests of the profession of your choice. I again cordially welcome you to the state of Indiana and the city of Indianapolis, trusting that your sojourn among us may be pleasant, that the result of your deliberations may be successful to the full extent of your most sanguine expectations, and that when you adjourn and go hence, you may carry with you pleasant recollections of this state and city. So you've got the welcoming of delegates from New York, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Connecticut, uh... Blah, 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 blah. Really nothing substantive in there. Uh, And uh, just a bunch of reading of names of officers. So, eh, boilerplate article about a medical convention. But it does tell us that they were, in fact, a eclectic medical association. Then, likewise, we've got in the Chicago Tribune of Friday... June 27, 1873, the Doctors' National Eclectic Medical Association Convention in Columbus. Uh, ooh, this, this one's got a little bit more content. Columbus, Ohio, June 26th. The National Eclectic Association re- reassembled this morning. The Committee on Credentials reported the admission of 40 new members. A.J. Howe of Cincinnati read a very interesting and carefully prepared paper on the use and treatment of cataract, which attracted a good deal of attention and called out an earnest discussion. John King of Cincinnati read an interesting paper on sick headache resulting from gastric acidity and described his method of treatment. Papers were received from H. Walgamuth of Springfield, Illinois, E.S. McClellan of New York on New Remedies, from J.G. Vanderwater of Indiana on cerebrospinal meningitis and from Dr. Patex of St. Louis on cholera. So, yeah, the rest of it is just the reading of, of officers, but think of that list and think of this room full of, of guys who are trying to apply unconventional herbal blah, blah, blah treatments to these very serious maladies. Now we move on to the Indianapolis news of Tuesday evening, June 12th, 1877. The quote-unquote eclectic and liberal, unquote, physicians meet at Dr. Long's office tomorrow evening to organize a society. So again, that's in June in Indianapolis. So this is a really solid indication that those first two announcements that I read to you were just in error, where they, they, they uh, put the word electric into type instead of eclectic. 
So I started to get an idea. I started to think, wait a minute. I wonder how much of the fascination with just throwing electricity into the mix, into your grift in the pseudo-medical profession, was due to a simple semantic happenstance. What if people all around the country, just like that typesetter seems to have done, said to themselves, what the hell is an eclectic? I, I don't know, does that have anything to do with electricity? If the public had that confusion, and if the public was assuming you were talking about electricity, and you're a grifter, doesn't it make sense that you would think, oh, why don't I just throw some electricity into my act? Now, you may think that's a stretch, but judging from my reading, that is solidly within the wheelhouse of human stupidity. Just normal, everyday human blockheadedness, both the, the propensity for, for a misunderstanding and the alertness and willingness to exploit that stupidity. It tracks for me. So I followed those tracks. Chicago Tribune, January 19th. 1865. Note the date. I wanted to look for antecedents for this misunderstanding and the exploitation of that misunderstanding. I wanted to know to what degree electricity had been thrown into these grifters' acts. Because up until I started doing this research, I was under the impression that the fascination with applying electricity to medical and spiritual pursuits didn't really gain traction until the end of the 19th century and didn't get really big until the beginning of the 20th. Uh, see my earlier episode about uh, William Hope Hodgson and the fascination with electricity, especially in the early 20th century. But boy, was I wrong. Because when I went back to around 1865 and worked forward, I found so much material that I, I went down fractal rabbit holes and dug up so much material that I've got at least enough for two more episodes. Uh, that's actually why it took me as long as it did to get this episode out, because I just didn't know where to stop. So anyway, I'm going to go through my findings of all the searches that I did where I sliced and diced my search terms any which way, you know, electrical physicians, electrical doctors, yada, yada, yada. So, Chicago Tribune, January 19th, 1865. Dr. Winter is now treating patients successfully, giving, in many instances, immediate relief. Call and see the doctor at Electric Institute, Union Park House, Chicago. Now, I googled that, and I couldn't find anything about an electric institute or an eclectic institute in Chicago at that time, so I have no idea whether that was a mistake or not. Now, keep in mind, there were so many instances of this sort of thing that I didn't have nearly enough room for all of them in this episode, and there were plenty of cases where my eye, just ranging over a page, found other instances of the word electric that the OCR slash database search hadn't 
hit. And this is an example of that. On that same page, electric and hydric baths. Dr. Higgins, number 142 South Clark Street, has opened an establishment for the cure of all the diseases which flesh is heir to without the use of drugs and medicines. The agents he uses are medicated and hybrid baths, and he claims to have performed several wonderful cures. The certificate of one of his patients, who has been most successfully treated, lies before us. The assertions therein made present a strong foundation for the claims the doctor makes. Those afflicted with diseases, particularly those of a nervous or chronic character, will do well to call upon Dr. Higgins and inquire for themselves concerning his mode of treatment and the probabilities of success. So, spoiler alert, you will see this sort of thing over and over and over again between this era and, say, 1920. Doctors giving people electric baths. Uh, and to what degree electricity was, in fact, involved, I have no idea. The Evening Telegraph, Philadelphia, November 22nd, 1866. Medical Experiments. This one's pretty gruesome, and it was printed in at least four different papers, probably many, many more that I didn't find. Four ringleaders in a mutiny at sea were executed at Brest, France, last month, and their bodies were given to the surgeons for dissection. Some interesting experiments made upon them are thus described. Next to the bodies, rolled up in napkins, were four livid heads, the work of dissection commenced instantly. The nerves quivered, and the flesh was still warm. The continual contractibility of the heart was proved, as well as in the aorta, where sensitiveness was extreme. The contractibility was manifested on simply touching the part, and of course was still more apparent when subject to electric currents. The muscular contraction was so intense that, even after twenty minutes, one of the doctors, on applying an electric current, made the foreheads grimace in the most horrific, in the most horrible manner. Ali's face, especially, assumed the most frightful expression. A pencil was placed between Ali's teeth. It was bitten through and smashed as though it was made of glass. Yuck. So, there are a couple of different uh, variants on that same article about the four heads. Moving forward to April 26th, 1867. Physicians, uh... And the, the PDF scan of this one was weird. It's really blurry. I'm not exactly sure what it says, but I think it reads J.M.U.A.R.T. Y-O-U-A-R-T. M.D. Eclectic Physician. Surgeon, surgeon and accoucheur. And the rest of it is too blurry to read. So again, we have uh, the media alternating between electric and eclectic, and I don't know which ones are legitimate printings and which ones are errors. Lowell Daily Courier, Lowell, Massachusetts, May 22, 1867. Mrs. C. A. Batchelder, magnetic, electric, eclectic, and healing physician. Wentworth's Block, 170 Merrimack Street, upstairs, room number 11. Mrs. B. would be happy to receive calls from the sick and afflicted. Office hours from 9 to 12 a.m., 
1 to 6, and 7 to 9 o'clock p.m. Notice that she says in big letters across near the top of the ad, magnetic, electric, eclectic. Again, I'm putting out the theory here that these grifters were reacting to the confusion between electric and eclectic and saying, fuck it, why not just say I'm both? Cover all the bases. The Hancock Jeffersonian, Findlay, Ohio, Friday, August 14th, 1868. Good news, electric oil! Frey and Ettinger, sole agents for Dr. Smith's celebrated electric oil. The best dealers sell Dr. Smith's electric oil because it cures people who have always used blistering, heating, and irritating alcoholic stuff can have no idea of the soothing effects of that wonderful and popular curative, Dr. Smith's Electric Oil. Doctors who have tried it say it is a valuable remedy and only cure for deafness. It cures sick headache every time. It is instantly quieting on a fresh cut or abrasion of the skin. Try it. It is the cheapest remedy known. I included that advertisement because, if you'll notice, there's absolutely no indication of the in that ad whether the grifter selling that stuff is actually making a claim that electricity is in any way involved in that oil. It appears to me that he was just throwing in the word electric because it was a buzzword and that people would just think, oh, electric, that's... that's sexy and new and uh, and contemporary, and I'll give it a try. Were people actually ill-informed enough to think that an oil could have some sort of um, stored-up electricity in it? I don't know. He was probably counting on people thinking that. I, I don't I don't know. there's there's just too too many gaps in my understanding for me to say. The Chicago Tribune. Tuesday, September 15th, 1868. Joy to the sick, Mrs. C.S. Scott, magnetic and electric physician, has returned to this city and is located in Major Block, corner Madison and LaSalle Streets, rooms 21 and uh, 39, where she is willing to cure after all others fail. All she asks is for the sick to test the fact. Office hours from 9 a.m. to 12 a.m. and uh, 3 to 5 p.m. The Working Man's Advocate, Chicago and Philadelphia, February 27, 1869. Electromagnetic Institute, Dr. R. Greer and Mrs. Dr. Sleeper, magnetic, electric, and eclectic physicians. Room 15, Lombard Block, Chicago. <laughs> and then at the bottom it says, NB, clairvoyant examinations. Yeah, a lot of these people threw in the clair clairvoyance into the pot. So it was clairvoyance, electricity, magnetism, ele eclectic medicine, yada, 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 yada. It just it became a, a melange of techniques with which to dazzle the public and saying, boy, they're covering all the bases. I'm going to go to them. Here's an interesting one. I'm going to read you two short p 
pieces from the same paper, the Wheeling Daily Intelligencer, Wheeling, West Virginia, Wednesday morning, May 19th, 1869. Now, on a later page, we have a list of new advertisements. And this was a common thing in newspapers of that time. There was, at some point in the paper, they just had a list of which advertisements to look out for because those were the new ones. Because these ads were identical during this area, excuse me, during this era for such long periods of time that people must have been accustomed to just completely skipping over them. So I think this was useful uh, for people who had any inclination to say to themselves, well, okay, I'll just out of curiosity, I'll check out the new ads. I won't ignore those. So in this list of new advertisements, one of the items says, Dr. J.W. Collins, electric physician. Then on another page, here's the advertisement, the new advertisement, Dr. J.W. Collins, eclectic physician. Office on Quincy Street, opposite the convent, Wheeling, West Virginia. Special attention given to the treatment of chronic diseases, diseases peculiar to females, etc. So here we have an instance of two printings within the same newspaper, one of which calls this guy a electric physician, the other of which calls him an eclectic physician. So this is going a long way towards accumulating a a wealth of evidence for a preponderance of confusion on the part of the public and on the part of typesetters. The Chicago Tribune, Saturday, June 5th, 1869. I love this one. Russo-Turkish baths with or without electricity, by Dr. Wingrave, hygienic physician of 40 years experience, number 116 Monroe Street. All curable diseases, male or female, cured without drugs, refers to the following distinguished citizens. And then there's a whole list of uh, professors and reverends. Many may be cured at their own homes with proper advice, Invalids are invited to call or write for information. So again, these electrical baths were a dime a dozen. Now, we move on to the advertiser from Thursday, July 15th, 1869. Uh, huh. I didn't... Oh, I didn't include the state there. Uh, anyway, the... Nunda? I don't know what that town is. Sorry, it's a blur. The News and Danville Express, I guess this is Ohio, give accounts of the recent meeting of the Electric Medical Society of this senatorial district. That society must be run by a battery. We guess they mean Eclectic Medical Society. I love this because it's a wonderful example of internecine newspaper snark. And this stuff was more common at the time than I can even tell you uh, because the newspapers were so partisan and it really lent itself to this sort of petty squabbling. And here we see the editor, or at least the writer, for 
one of these newspapers calling out the stupid mistake of two other newspapers in printing electric medical society. Basically, they're saying these idiots didn't even know what the word eclectic meant. So they're actually making a joke about the very phenomenon that I'm positing. Chicago Tribune, Wednesday, August 24th, 1870. Electric discs to physicians and surgeons. Dr. Garrett's medical electric discs cures or relieves rheumatism, neuralgia, sciatica. Also cures or relieves, uh, also cures cough, local weakness. I believe that's a male impotence thing. Impaired circulation, torpid liver, bronchial affections, dyspepsia, nervous headache, weakness or lameness of the side or back, pleurisy and palsy, asthma, lumbago, and paralyzed muscles, approved and prescribed by professors of Harvard Medical College and many of the best physicians in Boston and various parts of the country who have given certificates of their value and convenience, also recommended by Charles T. Jackson, M.D., state assayer of Massachusetts, Joseph Burnett, chemist, and all scientific men who have tested their merits. To the public, we wish to state that we are now selling Dr. Garrett's medico-electrical discs wholesale and retail, as we have done from the first, for we believe them to be decidedly the best thing of the kind ever invented. Medical men often say these are precisely the things they have been looking for. Codman and Shirtleff, Surgical Instrument Makers and Dealers, 13 and 15 Tremont Street, Boston. And it goes on to say we are permitted to refer to the following well-known physicians in this city, whole list of doctors, for sale with full descriptions and certificate of their merits by Fuller, Finch, and Fuller, blah, 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 blah. So here, basically, we have an early e-stem device in an era where telegraphy existed, but this was still two decades prior to the advent of alternating currents. So batteries were just a tremendously important uh, technological element in the industrial and, and communication ecosystem. And this cottage industry of medical batteries seems to have been a thing. The New York Herald, uh, October 8, 1870. Mammon-loving mediums. <laughs> Lecture last evening at the Liberal Club by Professor Vanderwaide, odic force and the fraudulent pretensions of spiritualism. Now, as you can tell from that headline, the New York Herald was skeptical, to say the least. I've spoken in previous episodes about the ridiculously typical New York aloofness that oozed from every pore of the New York Herald at this time. It's, it's kind of hilarious because the modern conception of what a, a, what a stuck-up New Yorker is is embodied by these newspapers that are 150, 160, 170 years old. It really reads like it was written by somebody on the Upper West Side. And that's... Uh, it's annoying and it's disturbing at times because that 
aloofness translates into a callous disregard for human suffering so that during the antebellum civil war reconstruction eras that uh, tone of the new york herald can make it difficult to even remember that they were supposedly an independent newspaper because they almost come across as a democratic newspaper in that in that aloofness but in cases like this it is more satisfying because it translates into a healthy skepticism. An interesting lecture was delivered last evening before the Liberal Club by Professor Vanderwade, an odic force, quote-unquote. For some time, spiritualism has been a favorite bone of contention among the members of the club, but this is the first occasion on which it has been made the leading subject of discussion. Hitherto, it has simply appeared as a side issue, the professor being well known for his unwavering skepticism on all that concerns mediums or the medium philosophy, a fierce onslaught on the table-turning cultus was confidently expected, and there was an unusually large attendance. At eight o'clock, the professor, having been introduced, knitted his brows, stroked back his long locks of grizzled hair, and with a preliminary hem, <laughs> a preliminary hem began his address. He said that spiritualists were constantly asking, with apparent sincerity, to have the phenomena upon which their system rested fairly investigated by competent scientific authority. Perhaps, if they were to pay a little more attention to facts than to magnetic imaginative theories, they would know that such experiments have already been made. He proposed briefly to sketch the growth of spiritualistic philosophy and would give in detail his personal experience of mediums and their fraudulent pretensions. He had made all his observations with but one desire, to know the truth, and he had but one fear, to believe a lie. First of all, it should be remembered that spiritualism and animal magnetism were not new things. Mesmer was, perhaps, the first to bring the phenomena claimed to be the result of odic force before the world. He was a German physician and supposed that electric currents existed in animal bodies similar to those which were known to reside in mineral magnets. Mr. Vanderwade then gave a detailed account of Mesmer's adventures in Paris and his subsequent brief career in London, adding that nothing which Mesmer is authentically stated to have done presented any difficulty to a man of science. He then entered into a brief account of Reichenbach's experiments. Reichenbach had stated that electromagnets, when in a state of activity, shone with a peculiar light, rosy red on one side and pale blue on the other. This light was, however, only visible to the eye of the medium. Reichenbach himself admitted that he himself had never witnessed it. Mr. Vanderwade, to test this claim, had called in several mediums of good repute and had purposely misled them as to the state of his magnet. He had always found that when he told the medium that the magnet was charged, whether he was telling the truth or not, the medium at once became conscious of the presence of this mysterious light while when it was announced that the magnet was not charged, they professed to see nothing. But he had never met a medium who could tell by merely looking at the magnet without being told its condition, whether it was in a state of electrical activity. 
Mr. Vanderwade then examined the various forms of humbug practice by the wrapping and the table-turning mediums. As to the wrapping, it was to be noticed that lady mediums with long dresses concealing their feet most affected that form of deception. He had on one occasion taken a stethoscope with him to the wrapping seance at the Cooper Institute. He had found that the wraps invariably came from the board upon which the medium was standing, and, of course, the stethoscope being so absolutely exact in its indications of the source of sound, there could be little suspicion of his having been misled by prejudice. He accounted for wrapping in many cases by the power he had found some persons to possess of cracking their joints without moving their limbs. As to table-turning, the medium always changed the position of the parties at the seance until all who were heaviest and strongest were at one end, and then the table, which was invariably one that could be easily tilted, began to stand up. He had attended seances without number both public and private, and had never found a single one that had been satisfactory. Mr. Vanderwade also attacked the claims of clairvoyance. He alluded to the standing reward offered by the Paris Academy of Sciences of $100 to whoever should read a hidden letter. The parties who offered to do so always required certain conditions, such, for instance, as that they should sleep for one night with the letter beneath their pillow, or that the person who threw them into the trance should be permitted to read its contents. Mr. Vanderwade closed by some interesting experiments in which the power of electromagnets was significantly illustrated. At the close of the lecture, a well-known spiritualist with the high, narrow forehead and long, curly hair and energetic oratorical action, which seemed necessary to distinguish all the many eloquent advocates of the new religion, made a short but decidedly weak defense of his belief. Several other gentlemen followed, and the discussion now and then waxed perceptibly warm. So look at what's happening in that article the doctor is casting aspersions on all of these charlatans who do their their act with uh, uh, seances and uh, spiritual energy, spiritualism. But in so doing, in leveraging that skepticism, he's sort of playing up the woo of electricity and magnetism. Moving on to the Chicago Tribune again, Wednesday, November 2nd, 1870. Medical and Electrical Institute. A short visit to Dr. Hayes, 189 Wabash Avenue, cannot fail to convince anyone why his medical and electrical institute has proved such a success. The doctor is a graduate of the regular school of medicine and has never forsaken his first love. He is thoroughly conversant with the new inventions and medical remedies of the present day, and his institute is neither more nor less than a home for his patients, where these means are skillfully administered and patients are as kindly cared for as if members of his family. Everything that tends to annoy the most fastidious as to their being in a hospital is removed. If one half of the efficiency of the electrothermal bath in the treatment of chronic diseases is true, it ought to be placed in every hospital and insane asylum in the land so that the inmates in whose cares this bath is 
appropriate might receive its benefits. Dr. Hayes' bath has been uh, carried to great perfection and is held free for any instrument maker or physician to make and use. Now notice that once again in this advertisement, this doctor is it, this doctor takes pains to point out that he is not just a an eclectic slash electric pra- practitioner. He is also quote unquote conversant with the new inventions and medical remedies of the present day. And sorry, uh, he is a graduate of the regular school of medicine and has never forsaken his first love. That same sort of uh, verbiage comes up in the previous ads where one or two of them mentioned, oh, I'm an allopathic doctor as well as an eclectic doctor. That just means, hey, for all of those who are worried about this newfangled woo of eclectic medicine, hey, I'm an allopathic doctor too. I've got all of the, the, the solid foundation of a conventional medical education as well as all this new stuff. The Cecil Wig, Elkton, Maryland, Saturday, November 19th, 1870. Mrs. R.A.N.A. Ward, M.D., and Professor of Electricity, 666 North 12th Street, above Wallace, West Side, Philadelphia. Please remember, no sign except on the door. She is the first lady in America who used electricity as a remedial agent for disease, and she has taught many ladies its efficacy in assisting to cure disease and save life in conjunction with pure vegetable medicines free from all poisons, minerals, or intoxicating liquors. Electricity without medicine cannot cure critical organic disease, and medicine should not be administered by persons who don't understand chemistry and what constitutes the human system, nor that the heart does not exactly lay under the right arm or the liver over the left shoulder. Electricity may cure a gum boil or a corn without medicine, but then that may form an abscess or ulcer upon the lungs never to be cured. All scientific doctors will testify to the necessity of the chemical action of medicine upon disease for perfect cures, and we will add our testimony after a medical practice of 35 years with electricity that any disease incidental to mortality, no, it actually says disease incidental to morality, can be cured by medicine and electricity combined, and we will prove it upon any worthy lady. Who will give us a fair chance and pay our moderate prices. If we work, we must be paid. Mrs. W. will make the electrical examination, then state the price for each application, how often to be given, and about how long for a cure. Should she consider the case incurable, she will decline treating it, thereby saving the patient much unjust expense. She has, in Philadelphia, restored to perfect health over 200 patients who had been pronounced by celebrated physicians incurable. Such are the patients she much prefers to doctor. We would respectfully invite all ladies who wish to live and get well to call upon us. Those who choose to die should not call, as we cure all we doctor. Consultation free. Hours with patients from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Consultations from 4 to 6 p.m. 
Each patient has a specified hour to call. Positively, we never board patients. Professional calls uh, out declined. Professional calls out declined. Please do not send for us. It is painful to refuse, but we cannot leave our office. NB. Through false representation by disreputable persons whom we discard for reasons well known to them and who have circulated our advertisements as theirs, for lawful testimony of either offense we will pay $100, we have received applications to treat females in cases resulting from disreputable conduct. For the information of all, we wish it distinctly understood that Mrs. DeWard never has and never will treat any case of that character, and if ever called upon again for such treatment, will positively have such persons arrested. We would caution such persons not to mistake our door for another's. I am not clear on what's going on here. Up above, it says, uh, any disease incidental to morality can be cured by medicine and electricity combined, but then... In that last bit, it says Mrs. DeWard never has and never will treat any case of that character, uh, of cases resulting from disreputable conduct. Uh, so it's almost like... I don't, I don't get it. Incidental to morality would tend to indicate venereal disease. Uh, that's right in line with the bulk of the ads at that time. But then... I don't know. It almost is saying like, well, if you've had a a slip and you got in trouble with the little VD, uh, that's cool. But if you're a prostitute, stay away. That's my guess. I don't know. It seems inconsistent. Anyway, Urbana Union, uh, Urbana, Ohio, Wednesday, December 21st, 1870. It will, it will be seen by the union that Dr. R.C. Hunter formerly of New York, has opened his office in this city. He is an electric and botanic physician and comes well recommended. This is the only instance I've found of anyone calling themselves an electric and botanic physician. Brooklyn Daily Eagle, Wednesday, January 11, 1871. Qatar until a very recent period, was considered incurable. It remained a stain and reproach upon the page of medicine. Recent discoveries enable me to cure nearly every case of catarrh and all diseases arising from it, such as neuralgia, headache, debility, dizziness, dropping in the throat, unnatural discharges, pain inside, chest and back, dyspepsia, kidney and uterine derangement, consumptive tendencies, Immediate relief in the worst cases. D.A. Smith, M.D., Electric Physician, number 72, late 50, Green Avenue, corner of Claremont. Consultation free on Thursdays and Fridays from 3 to 7 p.m., Saturday till 9 p.m. Alexandria Gazette, Alexandria, Virginia, Friday evening, May 26, 1871. The Winchester Times says... Dr. Vance, the celebrated Indian and electric physician and surgeon from the Edinburgh Medical College and Royal Hospital of Surgeons in London, folded his tent like an Arab and silently stole away on the five o'clock train on Thursday, leaving behind him many souvenirs in the shape of unpaid bills. 
So here we have another grifter skipping town. Again, a dime a dozen at this point. Now here we have a long, boring article from the Philadelphia Inquirer, Inquirer of uh, Saturday, June 10th, 1871. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I wanted to mention it because it mentions a doctor... Where is it? Uh, a doctor that I mentioned earlier, and I am not sure if it's the same one. Uh, anyway, this is the homeopathy 28th anniversary of the American Institute of Homeopathy, uh, fourth and last day's session. Uh, there is a little bit that's kind of fun because uh, Dr. V ah, Dr. Verdi, here we go. Uh, this is... Uh, Dr. Verdi submitted a motion to the effect that when the convention adjourned, it adjourned to meet on the 27th. Ah, where was that point? Sorry, folks, I'm doing this without any editing, so this is the price we pay. Ah, Dr. Berger made a motion that the name of Dr. Thomas Hewitt of Pittsburgh be stricken from the role of membership of the Institute. He said that this physician was now serving a term of imprisonment in the Western Penitentiary of Pennsylvania. Here's the part that I was trying to find. It's so blurry that uh, it's difficult to read. Dr. LaRue made an amendment that the subject be referred to the Committee on Censors, which was not agreed to. So I don't know if that's the same Dr. LaRue. Uh, and that's the, you know, one of the pitfalls of doing this type of research. Uh, you never know if there's no other uh, direct connection between <clears throat> the newspapers. But Dr. LaRue got around, as you saw from the previous entries, so it could have been him involved in that uh, homeopathic conference. Now, I thought this one was interesting because it illustrates how saturated political culture with uh, was with the popular culture of patent medicines, and all the surrounding fabulism. This is from uh, the New York Herald, November 29th, 1871. The democracy on their last legs, proposition of Mr. Voorhees for a national convention to reorganize the party. So again, remember that the New York Herald is, it modeled itself as an independent paper. And now comes the Honorable Daniel W. Voorhees of Indiana, a wheel horse of the Western democracy with his universal panacea as the only thing that can save the sorely afflicted and fast-failing believers in the unfortunate Democratic Party. His remedy is a national convention as soon as possible. He thinks it ought to be held not later than the 22nd of February, that the call should be issued by the National Executive Committee, that the delegates should be appointed by state and district conventions, and that the business of this body should be so caref to carefully and patiently weigh all views laid before it, and to agree upon and publish a clear and definite declaration of principles upon all matters affecting the political welfare of the people and the safety of our free institutions. This being done, the convention, he suggests, should adjourn to a day fixed for the nomination of a candidate for the presidency. 
Thus, he thinks, the democracy may be rallied into a solid column, and, in his opinion, if the entire democratic vote can be consolidated, inspired with enthusiasm, and brought to the polls, General Grant cannot be re-elected. Now, of all the plans submitted for the salvation of the forces of the Democratic Party, this, we think, is the best. It proposes a consultation of all the doctors of the party, allopathic, homeopathic, vegetarian, electrical, and cold water doctors, and that the treatment upon which they agree shall be applied to the patient. So, I'm not going to read the rest of that article. It's super boring. Probably shouldn't have read that much. Sorry about that. But I wanted to read the intro just to drive home the point that in this stream of dry political commentary, they inserted a metaphor about contemporary doctors. And the categories that this writer chose to mention in his little balmain was allopathic, homeopathic, vegetarian, electrical, and cold water doctors. So, electrical doctors. And this was a writer for the New York Herald. This guy definitely did not confuse electrical with eclectic. So, he meant what he wrote. Uh, I guarantee you that was not a mistake. So, electric doctors had permeated the public consciousness to such an extent that a writer for the New York Herald was using it in his little metaphor-slash-joke. <clears throat> the Troy Daily Times, December 16th, 1871. This is Troy, New York. A few days since, we stated that Dr. Davis, the celebrated eclectic and medical electrician, formerly of Troy, recently from the Chicago Fire District, had arrived in town and could be found at 340 River Street, Troy. We should have said Dr. Thomas J. Lewis. So this is a correction. But note the important thing. They list him as a celebrated eclectic and medical electrician. <laughs> um, and then in the same newspaper, there's an ad for that same doctor. Dr. Thomas J. Lewis eclectic and electric physician never fails to cure all chronic and acute diseases without the use of poisonous drugs. Consultation free at his medical parlors, 340 River Street, Troy. New York Herald, January 21st, 1872. Dr. Fillett, 697 Broadway, magnetic and electric physician cures chronic diseases without medicines, a specialty, office hours, etc., etc. Gold Hill Daily News, Gold Hill, Nevada, Tuesday evening, January 23rd, 1872. <laughs> this is fantastic. <clears throat> a cure for red noses. Electricity has achieved a new triumph already employed to restore vigor and nimbleness to gouty limbs, the recent discoveries of Dr. Bernier, a French physician, show electricity to be an efficient remedy for all the evil effects of excessive drinking on the human nose. The doctor maintains that by application of an electric current to noses, even of the most bacchic hue, the flesh may be made to come again as the flesh of a little child, 
and supports his assertion by a case performed on a female patient of his own, a woman of high rank, knights of the burning lamp, who have still some regard for personal appearance, will appreciate Dr. Bernier's discovery, as it promises them immunity from the dreaded outward testimony to their pet vice. There is one danger, however, in the discovery, namely its tendency, if confirmed, to encourage the growth of secret intemperance. And there is a uh, smaller version of that same article in the Bowl of Our Bulletin in Tennessee, January 26th, 1872. Now, this one is just a load of fun. The New York Herald, Monday, January 29th, 1872. This was a big story. Spiritualism in a police court. It is a remarkable fact that when spiritualism is brought into court, it is always proved a humbug and a swindle. So again, we have that healthy skepticism on the part of the New York Herald. A very funny case was brought before Justice Fowler at Jefferson Market on Saturday last, of which we gave an interesting and instructive report yesterday. The case was that of a Mrs. Fuller, a spiritualist and quote-unquote magnetic and electric physician against one Thomas Sproul, who was also a spiritualist, until he found out how the old thing works. Sproul being charged with stealing from Mrs. Fuller a valuable watch and chain. On the trial, a ludicrous rigmarole of incoherent spiritual rubbish was elicited from the plaintiff, and a side-splitting exposure by the defendant of the shallow Jeremy Diddler device devices of these so-called spiritual mediums, which brought down the house. Spruill pleaded that, being regularly sold and cleaned out by them, he had resolved to turn public informer against these mediums as the biggest sort of frauds, and having the vouchers in his possession, which would nail them to the counter. They trumped up this charge of larceny in order to head him off and impeach him as a witness. So far, too, from the evidence and in the absence of any spiritual manifestations in court, in behalf of Mrs. Fuller, we are inclined to bet on Spruill, but the case comes up again tomorrow. What's that you say? A ludicrous rigmarole of incoherent spiritual rubbish? Well, hell, I've got to read that. And this is from the New York Herald of January 31st, 1872. That's two days later. Grab some popcorn, folks. An afternoon among the spirits. Interesting developments of the workings of the mediums. Dr. Gordon's seances exposed in the Jefferson Market Police Court. The doctor who believes and the assistant who does not. Dr. Gordon's spirit bride appears arrayed in diamonds and costly apparel. The examine. The examination in the case of Thomas J. Spruill, charged by a Mrs. Fuller with stealing a gold watch and chain from her, valued at $150, was continued before Justice Fowler at the Jefferson Market Police Court yesterday afternoon. The courtroom, at an early hour, was crowded by long-haired, sunken-eyed creatures who appeared to bear a distant relationship to each other. Counselor James D. McMulland appeared for the prisoner. Examination of Thomas P. Spruill. The first witness called was the defendant, Spruill, who was cross-examined by Colonel Hart, attorney for the prosecution. He testified as follows. My name has been Spruill ever since I was born. Some spell it sprawl. I have spelt it that way. I had no motive in doing it. 
I became acquainted with Gordon about three months ago. He took me into a private room and told me the angels had told him I was to be his spiritual brother. He told others so. He told a Mr. Cole the spirits said he was to have four brothers. He took a Mr. Hayes and a Mr. Bartlett in his back room. I told him my name was Spruill. I was working at bookbinding for Harper's at the time. Gordon took a notion to me and wished me to become his spirit brother. He manipulated my head, saw a scar on it, a partly assaulted me. A party? A party assaulted me and nearly killed me. It was in a lager beer saloon in 2nd Street. Gordon wanted me to stay with him as he was afraid to stay alone. I made no bargain with him. We made no partnership arrangement. I was with him about a month. I'd done the business in the daytime. I did not assist him in his seances. Only when he got excited, I went to him and told him to keep cool. I acted in the audience. I was not near him when he performed. I resided with him. He told me of his financial affairs. I managed the business. Collected about $150, paid him $25. He left the rooms in my charge. I inspected all the interior of the building, all the paraphernalia. He had confidence enough in me to leave me in charge of the room. I found some cardboard pictures in his room. They were 14 inches one way and 10 the other. I have one with me. It represented the spirit bride. It was the picture of the queen of beauty. It represented Dr. Gordon's spirit bride, dressed in diamonds and laces. Picture produced. Laughter. I remember the faces I saw. One was a boy, had Willie underneath. Some thought in the seances that it was Robbie or their darling little baby. I burned up the pictures because I thought it a fraud. I did not wish to hurt Gordon. That was the reason I burned them up. I was a short distance off during the seances. I saw the pictures every night. He had the gown on and the picture in his left hand. He was covered up in a white gown. He would arise up and stretch his hand up. The fraud was so bunglingly done. I did not think he would have the audacity to practice it. Saw Mrs. Fuller there only once. Never paid her any money. She handed cards around the audience purporting to be a magnetic physician. The reason that Mrs. Fuller had me arrested was because I had a falling out with the medium. I was known as Thomas Perry. I did not care to have people know I visited spiritual mediums. I gave a Mrs. Frost my name as Perry. Never meant Never went by the name of Littlefield. Don't know, James Doughty. Sent my washing to Washington Hotel. Know the clerk put my name on the bill as Littlefield. I had trouble in a larger beer saloon with Gus Maxwell. I wanted him to lend me a dollar. I have been in the city since last May. I was hard up at that time. I was then at Harper's. I have not been in Harry Hills that I know of. I believe I was there once. Don't know Pat or Hugh. Never had a row with them. I have a scar on my head. When I was a little boy, a fellow insulted my sister. I resented it, and he licked me. I have a scar on my arm. I was fooling a boy and got hurt. I was very badly hurt in the lager beer saloon. Was taken to Park Hospital. I went by name of Spruill. I first boarded at Washington Hotel. Went from there to Mrs. Maxwell's. Have been in Chicago. Never been under arrest. Have been through Canada. 
have a home in Boston, have been married. My wife and I, separated by mutual agreement, have been in Indianapolis. The chief of police of that city is not after me, never said I killed a man or murdered one, knew a boy named Dennis at Gordon's, don't know where he is. Gordon said he stole something from him. I said perhaps he had gone to New Jersey because I thought it the best way to get out of the country. Boys used to come and see Dennis. I used to shake carpets for Gordon. I used to shake them out of the window, only when too dirty. Took them on the roof sometimes. Never heard of any property missing when I took them on the roof. The men were not afraid of me at Harper's. I never re... Uh, I never related my bloodthirsty encounters to them. I had $15 when I left Harper's. When we went in business, I spent a good deal of money for Gordon to take care of him, as he was sick. I bought provisions for Gordon. I never got any gold rays belonging to Harper, nor had them in my possession after I left there. I never told Gordon Dennis was a thief. Dennis and I washed the dishes and cleaned the house. I was not intimate with him, no more so than the professor. I never saw any forms at Gordon's. He only had these pictures. He held up the pictures to show them. They bowed and apparently smiled. People imagined it. The queen of beauty had a smile painted on its face. When it bowed, Gordon would move his hand under the robe. I wanted to satisfy myself and opened Gordon's trunk. Redirect. I have a third interest in Gordon's business. The property belonged to the firm. Gordon showed a ghost that appeared of its own account. He had a piece of black silk placed through the head, thrown up over a piece of wire and tied to a doorknob. When the door opened and shut, the figure would bow backwards and forwards. He remained behind the curtain some time after the seance and removed the machinery. He pretended to the audience he was so much exhausted from the trance that he had to rest. He had a costly robe made. He said there was something wonderful to be performed the coming year. The spirits would come out and talk with the audience. I showed him a picture one day and said that he produced his seances from these. He said, My God! I, a medium of twenty years' practice and doing as you accuse me, he said if he did, if he did, I had psychoanalyzed him, that I was not far enough advanced yet to understand the spirits. There was a picture, the same as the Queen of Beauty, which Dr. Gordon represented as his spirit bride. He took one of his diamond studs and placed it in the ear of the picture and another in the bosom. She was dressed in illusion lace and silks. The Queen of Beauty and the silk attached to her hand and from there to the doorknob was performed one night to convince a very skeptical gentleman. I saw the diamond shine. Gordon told me he placed the diamond there. Mrs. Fuller testified, I never had any business with Gordon, went there three times, never assisted him in his seances. I went as an electric physician. I studied with a private physician. I had no motive in exposing Gordon's frauds if I knew them to be such. Recross-examined. I cannot remember whether I got up in one of Gordon's seances and denounced them as a damnable imposition. I won't swear that I did not do so. I saw things that I did not like. I did not like the actions of some of the parties there. I suppose they were men and women both, as they were dressed in male and female apparel. Examination of James Butson. James Butson, a delegate from the country who must have stood in the mud when he got measured for his pants, testified as follows. 
I have visited Gordon's seances. I graduated at a medical college. I am a physician, mechanic, and inventor. I visited Gordon's seances to see. I wanted to learn. I wanted to know whether forms of the departed could be produced. I saw them. They were not like the Queen of Beauty. They were not pictures. I am fond of pictures, have been in the Academy of Design, can tell all kinds of pictures. I would know the picture if I saw it there. The spirits I saw could not be produced by pictures. I kept my eyes open and listened. Fifty thousand dollars would not produce procure machinery enough to produce a machine to operate pictures the way they were. I know something about theatricals and sleight of hand. The witness here gave a description of the room. The forms have come along with Dr. Gordon from the back to us in the front room from four to six feet from us. We could have seen wires if there had been any. I saw one face of a deceased person I was acquainted with. I saw Dr. Franklin. It was a good face of him. I can tell by his statue in Printing House Square. It was not bronzed. It was not full length, only a bust. The forms, some of them, looked deathly. There was a different aspect in nearly all of them. Some of them had a lifelike expression, but some of them were beautiful. I can't describe them. Anyone that wants to know how it is had better go and see how it is themselves. There were never many of a family present at any one time. I went to five, became satisfied, and to one since. I think I have been present when several recognized the faces as mutual friends. The spirit bride produced is in court, does not look anything like the one produced at the seance. I went through Gordon's rooms, saw no machinery. He asked us to do it. All of the spectators did not examine as they felt satisfied with the seance. I have seen face and form of an individual at the seance. A lady in one of the circles saw the spirit of a deceased sister pass clear around Gordon. We all saw it. The spirits were all in all positions. I saw the form of a child in Gordon's arms. It moved. Its hands moved as natural as life. It would caress him. The movement was vivid and perfectly natural. A person who did not know it was a spirit would take it for a living child. If it bowed, it was a graceful one. Mr. Gordon could not have produced the child by artificial means. It remained in his arms some time. Sometimes it would be six feet from us. I observed Gordon shake his gown before the seance so we could see he had nothing about him. I have closely watched conjurers and think I could detect fraud. I went there, not expecting to see such miracles. I was an unwilling convert. Some of the forms raised upwards and off through the air. I <clears throat> watched and could not hear anything drop. Gordon's arms could not reach so far. I saw the form of a Mrs. Richardson, who had been buried only four days. She had the cap and some of the apparel she was buried in. We all recognized it. The apparition was several feet from Gordon. It bowed to someone in the room, not to the circle. She advanced towards us. She was beyond the door. The form was vapory, at first very indistinct, and gradually grew more distinct. The lights were partially turned down as it hurt the eyes of the medium. I am a spiritualist. I have been compelled. I am a Christian. I believe spiritualism was in advance of orthodoxy. I don't believe anyone can understand the doctrines of Christ right if they don't believe in spiritualism. They can more fully understand religion if they first believe in spiritualism. Cross-examined. I know Dr. Gordon. I see him here. It is that gentleman pointing to the doctor. I am 43 years of age. I graduated at Botanical Medical College in Cincinnati, Ohio, 
I attended two courses of lectures. I received a diploma. I studied medicine before I went there. I have two diplomas from other colleges. I have practiced medicine 12 years. I practiced in Illinois, in Canton, Fulton. I practiced there seven years. I was there in 1857. I went to Yates City, stayed there five years. After I left there, I came to this city. I gave up the practice of my profession when I became an inventor. I made up my mind when I came to this city to investigate spiritualism. I have been a spiritualist four years. I was formerly a Baptist. By counsel, were you hard or soft shell? Laughter. Uh, Hugh here. That's a reference to politics that's too obscure for me to get into right now. Suffice it to say, it's uh, it's referring to uh, specific stripes of Democrats at that time. A. A person cannot become a spiritualist only by attending the seance and seeing for himself. The curtain used by Gordon was about one-third way from the rear of the room. The gas in the front room was from a chandelier in the middle of the room. In the middle room, there was no gas or lights. In the rear room, there was a light. The altar where Gordon operates from is in the rear room, near the wall. The audience sometimes sit near the altar during the seances. There were 20 persons there one night. They paid 50 cents, some 25. I most always paid. One night I had no money and got trusted. I paid the next time I went. I never saw Herman. I have seen jugglers. Never saw persons take chickens from a handkerchief. Saw a man put a silver coin in a man's hand and take out a brass coin. I knew how it is done. The operator performed it on me. The man took my 25 cents in silver and left me a cent. The witness explained how the juggler manipulated his hand to get the silver piece. The portions I saw were not susceptible to feeling. I understand a man broke out of the circle one night and grabbed for one of the spirits, but was rewarded at finding his hand full of emptiness. The nearest any of the spirits came to me, the one we call Frost, was ten feet. Some came within five feet of me. The circle was composed of eight or ten persons. We sat around a table. Spruill said at the time there was no imposition on it. It would cost $50,000 to get up machinery to operate any object the way the spirits moved around the room. I never grabbed after any of the spirits. I did not feel to see if there was any connection between Gordon and the spirits. If I had any doubts as to genuineness of the spirits, I should have made an effort to examine them. They were not spirits. I do not believe there was any fraud practiced. I saw Dr. Franklin's spirit. I consider the pictures are the spirits of forms who once existed here on earth. I heard Spruill testify they were pictures. Heard him say he destroyed them. There is one picture that would command thousands of dollars if it would produce a like effect. I think Spruill was mistaken. I saw Franklin's spirit form, his long flowing beard and bust. Some were full form. The spirit bride was about the size of the doctor. Sometimes we saw the hands and different parts of the body. The spirits never showed their backs. When the spirit bride passed around, it also passed around Gordon. I did not see Ben Franklin's back. I never saw the back of the spirit bride. I saw other distinguished persons. There appeared to be a lot of old men with gray beards whom nobody recognized. Once, when I was there, hands were shown. They were those of a child. The child caressed the doctor. 
Question. How near was you when you saw the child flopping in this way? Answer. It was not a flop. The body was not dead or alive. It was a shirt. The doctor had on a robe something like a priest. He had no petticoat on him this time. I didn't touch the body. I saw pictures disappear in the air. They were ten feet from the wall. I saw the spirit of Mrs. Richardson. She had hair on. I was at her funeral. Don't think Gordon knew her. Her eyes were blue. When the form appeared, we all exclaimed, Old Mrs. Richardson! Her hair was gray. When she first appeared, we had a profile view of the face. She did not stay long. She only made a short visit. I have not seen her since. Others have. I saw enough of the lady to notice that when she bowed, we could see nearly her whole form. I saw something besides the trunk and chest of Mrs. Richardson's spirit. I did not see the back. I am acquainted with Miss Frost, one of the spirits produced by Dr. Gordon. I don't see her in court. Laughter. I believe spiritualism is a good help to Christians, and if... All the people believed in it. They would be better off. Saw some spirits. Spruill left Gordon. The doctor was to give a seance on Sunday evening, but the doctor being sick, he could not perform. He managed to show the child. A bloody-looking bunch appeared on the doctor's arm when he came out of the trance, and the seance ended. Some went forward to find out what it was and found nothing. They explained that it was a possible railroad accident somewhere where a child was being cut in pieces. Laughter. I believe the spirits held me in my inventions, help me in my inventions. They help all persons for good or bad. Doctor, uh, counsel, doctor, can't you prevail upon the spirits to invent us some permanent method by which we can produce an underground railroad in this city? Laughter. The witness did not deign to answer the query. Counsel, doctor, have you ever been in a lunatic asylum? Answer, no. The council, having gained all the information they could in reference to spiritualism from the witness, allowed him to take his seat. The case was further adjourned until tomorrow afternoon, at half-past one, when it is expected the prosecution will place Dr. Gordon on the witness stand. <clears throat> so, again, by 1872, we have a more than healthy degree of skepticism at seances. <clears throat> Go to the show notes. You can see the rest of the account of the uh, that trial uh, from January 31st, 1872. I'm not going to take any more time to, to read more of that. Uh, we're going to skip ahead to, well, the Chicago Tribune on February 1st ran a summary of that same court case. Now, the Ilian Citizen, Thursday, February 8th, 1872. The New York Evening Mail thus moralizes. A young man has been brought up for trial in one of the police courts for stealing a watch from an electric physician, spiritual medium, seer into the future, etc., etc., and declares it is all a conspiracy to <clears throat> reign him because he has got hold of the secrets of the trade and threatened to disclose them. So this is a very short summary of that same incident in New York City. <clears throat> the Chicago Tribune, May 21st, 1872, has a, an account of a 
com the commencement exercises at the Bennett Medical College, and it says the commencement exercises of the eighth session of the Bennett Eclectic Medical College are held at the college. <clears throat> Again, from the Tribune, we've got an advertisement run on May 21st, 1872. Mrs. DeWolf, business clairvoyant and test medium. Mrs. Moody, electric and magnetic physician. <clears throat> Wilmington Daily Commercial, Wilmington, Delaware, Tuesday, June 11th, 1872. Dr. Garrett's Electric Discs, Boston, May 28, 1869. A.C. <clears throat> Garrett, M.D. Dear Sir, I have experienced such marked good effects myself from the use of your electric disc in incipient dyspepsia and for a nervous cough. Also, having seen these discs used in other cases on the body and limbs for restoring from weakness, lameness, imperfect nerve energy, and for poor blood circulation with such decided success that I desire to offer my strongest testimony as to their efficacy and as being well calculated to relieve aches and pains and help the feeble of all ages. Very truly yours, Joseph Burnett, Chemist, Boston. This excellent and simple disc battery, of which we have supplied quite a large number during the past year, is both efficient and durable, as well as no trouble. It is perfectly clean and worn on the body or limb next to the skin, acts without shock, easily, comfortably, and continuously, furnishing the protracted tonic effects of self-acting localized primary electricity without the trouble or expense of a ponderous battery. <clears throat> These ceaseless working discs have been found invaluable in relieving pains and weakness of the chest, back, or side in sprains of the ankle, wrist, or shoulder, in nervous headache, nervous dyspepsia, bronchial irritation, rheumatic or neuralgic pains, in removing old rheumatic uh, ulcerations, in, I don't know what that word is, rheumatic indurations, which may be causing protracted lameness, etc., for sale by E. Bringhurst and Company, Apothecaries, Corner 6th and Market Street. Now, this is a good one. I found this essay on the doctors by, quote, fat contributor, unquote, in these five papers. The Orangeburg News, November 1872, uh, the Anderson Intelligencer, South Carolina, 1872, Yorkville Inquirer, Yorkville, South Carolina, November 1872, the Somerset Herald, Somerset, Pennsylvania, uh, July 17th, 1872, and Dallas Herald, November 23rd, 1872. So they were all fairly, fairly localized in time. Uh, here's, the, uh, here's the essay from the Anderson Intelligencer. An essay on the doctors by the fat contributor. Quick, go for the doctor! 
All right, I'm going for him. I have been aching to go for the doctor a long time, so here goes. There are a great many kinds of doctors. Big doctors and small doctors, old school doctors, doctors of the new school, and doctors without any schooling whatsoever. There are doctors of laws and doctors of sons-in-laws, ear doctors and doctors difficult to get the ear of, tooth doctors, nail doctors, and doctors who go at you tooth and nail, eye doctors and IOU doctors, eclectic doctors, electric doctors and doctors not of the elect, who go go it mostly on tick. Thus we have cold water doctors and doctors who straw it a good deal, root doctors and doctors whose motto is root, hog, or die, spiritual doctors and doctors very much out of spirits, magnetic doctors and doctors who haven't any magnetism in them, or much else, laying on of hands doctors, and doctors who will take anything they can lay their hands on, except, perhaps, their own physic. <clears throat> sweat doctors are numerous. If they don't sweat their patients, their patients sometimes make them sweat. And there are few doctors who are not compelled to sweat around a good deal to get their pay. Among the Indian doctors are the full-bred, half-bred, corn-bred, and doctors never bred at all, at least not bred to medicine, the latter class being far the most numerous. As a general thing, Indian doctors, as they call themselves, know nothing whatever about Indians. Many of them never saw one, but that is nothing strange in medicine. Men have practiced medicine all their lives without enjoying the slightest acquaintance with it. Herb doctors are popularly supposed to spend a large portion of their time in meandering through the fields culling herbs, Nothing of the sort. Lots of them wouldn't know catnip from pennyrile if they saw them growing. They cull their herbs at the druggists. There are lung doctors and doctors with very little lungs, although tolerable livers. Doctors are good livers, as a general thing. <clears throat> the throat doctor appears in a variety of forms not strictly recognized in medicine. The hangman is the most thorough throat doctor we have. His remedy, a stricture of hemp, rarely fails to cure the most obstinate throat difficulty. Few persons have ever been hard, few persons have ever been heard to complain of their throat after the first application. Barkeepers are another variety of throat doctors whose mixtures also are too familiar to many people. Cold water is the safest for the throat as an inward application. Pepper doctors were quite popular some years ago. They don't pepper us so much as they did, though many doctors are peppery enough. Mustard doctors are in the army for the most part unless they are mustered out. Cancer doctors are almost as numerous as cancers themselves. Every cancer doctor exhibits so many cancers he has taken out that I have sometimes wondered if they didn't take it out in cancers. I was once shown a tumor so large I asked, I asked the doctor if space was valuable, why he didn't stick his patient away in a glass jar and let the tumor walk around. Movement doctors are trying hard to get up a movement, but... Bless you, the old-fashioned pill doctors are years ahead of them. They are the original movement doctors. Corn doctors should not be overlooked. Some of them are very skillful in taking off a corn. A corn doctor took off a corn for me once, and he took it off so far it was near a week before it got back again. 
No man who hasn't horse sense has any business trying to be a horse doctor, although he may get a diploma to doctor men. Even the constitution of a horse may be broken down by unskillful treatment, yet in selecting a physician for ourselves we occasionally forget that. The horse doctor sometimes gets more kicks than coppers, though he is one of the few privileged persons who is excused for looking a gift horse in the mouth. The healthiest town I ever knew was out in Illinois one summer when the doctors went east to attend a medical convention, neglecting to return for several months. The doctors found when they did get back that their patients had all recovered, the drug stores had bursted, nurses had opened dancing schools, the cemetery was cut up into building lots, the undertaker had gone to making fiddles, and the village hearse had been gaudily painted and sold for a circus wagon. Although I have metaphorically gone for the doctors, let nothing I have said be construed as reflecting upon them as a class. They are good-humored and can, therefore, take a joke, and for the most part are charitable and humane. I have a good many friends among the doctors, yet they are the very last men I want to call on. So, I'm not even going to bother trying to parse out all the droll little puns peppering that article. Overall, it's an indictment of the sort of quackery of that time that everyone was clearly sick of and very uh, very skeptical of. Now, I got curious as to who Fat Contributor was, so I went back to Chronicling America and looked up that exact phrase, and I found 842 results for Fat Contributor from 1870 to 1875, and five or ten minutes of Googling later, I found this in the Northern Illinois University Library's website. Alfonso Minor, the Fat Contributor, Griswold, journalist and humorist, was born in Westmoreland, Oneida County, New York, January 26, 1834, just down the road from where I grew up. Uh, I, I grew up in Madison County, uh, just, it's the neighboring county. Uh, he attended the Oneida Academy Academy, and later was graduated from Hamilton College. Uh, <laughs> Hamilton College is in Hamilton, uh, Hamilton, New York, where my mother and I would go to the farmer's market on Saturdays. Uh, my mother would sell baked goods and crafts at that, uh, at that farmer's market. So this is all my old stomping grounds. He was married in 1857 to Henrietta Benson of Boston and the next year became a reporter on the Buffalo Republic and Times. He soon won a name for himself as the Fat Contributor, although he was not fat. In 1859, he wrote editorials for the Detroit Advertiser and later was associate editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. In 1863, he became city editor of the Cincinnati Times. Owing to failing eyesight, he retired temporarily from newspaper work and became manager for the actor Lawrence Barrett, and on March 15, 1865, made his own debut on the stage in Cincinnati as a humorous lecturer, a profession he was to follow until his death. Hugh here. want to point out, think of the synergy between newsprint and stage performance that that implies. He spent 
all that time building up a reputation and a, a footprint in the news media, and then he decided that going on, taking his act onto the stage was a good idea. I can't overstate the importance of being able to project and hold a room in this era long before any kind of electronic projection. It, it could make or break a career, the simple act of being able to fill a room with your voice. In the meantime, however, he founded in Cincinnati in 1872 the Fat Contributors Saturday Night and wrote for it until 1883 when he sold it. Free from editorial duties, he went to Europe and remained for three years. In 1886, he became one of the editors of the Texas Siftings, a humorous paper founded by Alexander E. Sweet and J. R. Moy Knox in 1881, in which Griswold had a part interest, but he also continued his humorous lectures. While in Sheboygan Falls, Wisconsin, where he had lectured the previous day, he died suddenly of apoplexy, March 14, 1891. So that's the fat contributor. Two more quick pieces. The Wheeling Intelligencer, Friday, July 25th, 1873. Electricity cures many nervous diseases after all else has failed. Its effect is like life from the dead. If you would know more of its wonderful power and how it should be applied, call on Dr. Longdon, and he will take pleasure in giving you full explanations. The Evening Star, Washington, D.C., Tuesday, December 22, 1874. Hattie J. French, the celebrated electrician, clairvoyant, and test medium, 725 11th Street, Northwest. Cases both acute and chronic, treated and cured by electric magnetism. I don't know about you folks, but I'm sold. Again, I think this makes a strong case for the connection between eclectic and electric medicine and all of the fabulism surrounding it being a simple result of phonetic coincidence and the exploitation of that confusion by grifters. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze His movements were graceful, the girls he could please And my love he stole away